the shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album. Where I get to crap on about anything I like. Welcome to episode 17 of Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. We're at the lactic acid-drenching final leg of this marathon. We can almost see the finish line in the distance. Time to reflect on where we've been. Hang on, who am I kidding? This entire podcast has been reflecting on where I've been. The past is an enticing place. Sometimes, but not always, a healthy place to hang out in. Some retreat to the past to find comfort. Others are equally driven by the past, but only to erase it, to rewrite its wrongs. Those two extremes are embodied by the two central characters in Only the Shit You Love, Jessie's Girl and Greta the Garbo. Mutually exclusive, doomed to be set in opposition to each other. Which is the correct way? Who are we meant to be rooting for? And yet, if you've watched episode 17 of the web series Gone, sorry, uh, plot ending ruiner coming up, if you haven't, you'll have found out that at the very end, the two of them have shacked up together. And therein, dear listener, lies the clue to my position on the whole thing. A few years ago, if you'd gone around saying social distancing was a good thing, or even used that phrase at all, people might have thought you had sociopathic tendencies. Now, social distancing is depressingly overused as reaching out, And it's a bit symbolic of the way we are at the moment, increasingly finding ways to be in opposition. The fact that we use the phrase reaching out to describe even the most basic form of contact also strikes me as significant, albeit accidentally. I mean, the phrase is just another example of somebody fucking the language and everybody else following like sheep. But that aside, I do like to invent significance in stuff that ain't got significance, so bear with me. If sending someone a fucking email is reaching out, is that a sign that we're so isolated, so constantly at odds with one another, that any form of contact is a courageous act of seeking intimacy? I know, I know, stop it. You're being a wanker again. Anyway, the two opposite poles in the story have shacked up. And isn't that a good thing? And while I'm spoiling plot developments for you, this episode is also noteworthy for the rather harsh and sudden demise of our post-anti-hero Marcel Proust. He's gone and fucked off out of the story a whole two chapters before the end, leaving us with only the two hitherto seemingly supporting characters, Greta and Jessie. How does that work? You can't just remove the central character of a story. It ceases to be a story, surely. I used to joke about doing that, rewriting the works of Shakespeare, but removing the main character in the opening few pages, like Macbeth getting killed or Romeo and Juliet shacking up and then just have the minor characters drifting somewhat aimlessly. I suppose that's what Tom Stoppard did in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is a whole play about two minor characters in Hamlet. Nice idea, but like all high absurdist art, a bit boring though. 
Anyway, so I've gone and chopped off the story's central character before the thing has ended. Apart from congratulating myself for injecting a bit of the old Game of Thrones unexpected fatality, am I making a bigger statement? Was Marcel really not the central character all along? Is it Jesse and Greta? Am I saying that Marcel, who somewhat coincidentally has a crooked schnoz rather like me, am I saying that Marcel's demise is symbolic of the irrelevance of the entitled middle-aged male? That it's time blokes like me fucked off out of the story and let the Jessies and Gretas take over? Could be. I'll leave that to you to decide. There's a whole other story going on in Gone, and it was really the original idea for the song, which then got subsumed into the whole nostalgia motif running through the series. It's a song about the dangers of letting the past consume you, about being haunted by it. This, of course, is not me thinking on some grand, incredibly dramatic scale. People with traumatic pasts, I mean. If you've had a traumatic past, of course you're going to be haunted by it, and I completely understand why, and I can only hope you manage to work your way through that. I didn't have a traumatic past, as much as I exaggerated in these little backward-looking podcast episodes. I was very lucky. So, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the sort of very low-level, minor-league haunting that some of us, probably most of us, experience if we've reached a certain age and we look back on people and places and events that no longer happen in our lives. About the feeling you get when you're reminded by a place or a song or a chance remark of things that you miss. Without stating the bleeding obvious, in 2020 and 2021, restaurants, bars, venues, cinemas, retail stores, even humble office buildings became, for lengthy periods, ghostly shells without people. And it only served to heighten my weird affliction. I'd find myself driving past these places reminiscing about the good old days, which was six months previously. How pathetic is that? But that's how my mind works. Do you have a nerdish interest in something that you know not to talk about at parties, lest it bores the fuck out of your guests? I have several. Supermarionation. English football in the 1970s. And weirder still, here's the really boring one. Old football grounds. Yep, I'm really interested in old football grounds. Not just any old football grounds, they have to be at a certain level of importance. And this is clearly delineated. I'm only interested in old football grounds if they have a grandstand. The more old-fashioned, the better. My highlight as a teenage soccer player was playing against Fitzroy United Alexander at the Brunswick Street Oval, once home to the Fitzroy Football Club. Nowadays, it's a public access park with grassy slopes around the oval and one old grandstand beautifully preserved as a National Trust building. But when I played there, it would have been 1976, and the old working features of the ground were yet to be demolished. It still had two fully intact grandstands and the terracing around the perimeter, and unbelievably, it still had Fitzroy Football Club photos and plaques up on the walls of the dressing room. My proudest moment as captain of the Paran Slavia under-16s was leading the team down the old Fitzroy race. That is, for non-football tragics, 
the caged runway leading from the dressing room out onto the field. It was all in a state of disrepair. There was a yawning, murky puddle you had to leap over at the bottom of the sloped race, and there was no crowd roaring as you emerged, just a smattering of old Greek blokes. But I was in heaven. I can't remember anything about the match that followed. What is wrong with me? Why do I love old football grounds? A certain part of it springs from my childhood sense that football grounds were a magic place. But I also really love the architecture. A grandstand with wrought iron latticework, a gabled roof, a white picket perimeter fence, an old-fashioned non-electric scoreboard. Magnificent. But it's not just the architecture. There's that weird decal sense of ghosts running around on it. These are places that once saw huge gatherings of people watching legends of the sport. They were places where life happened in its full technicolour wonder. The Junction Oval on Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, original home of my beloved St Kilda Football Club, has the ghost of my very own granddad, James Cowell, running around on it. Other grounds have different kinds of ghosts. I stroll along the grass at Victoria Park, once home of Collingwood Football Club, now in the middle of Hipsterland, with plaques acknowledging the first peoples and Indigenous art sculptures and beautiful families playing with their dogs, and I'm there seeing the ghosts of vicious, racist Collingwood football supporters spitting at Nicky Winmar. That's not a good thing, by the way. It's a way better place now than it once was. But generally, when I visit old football grounds, it's a melancholy feeling I get, a bittersweet sense of loss, particularly heightened if the ground is no longer maintained, weeds growing between the rows of terrace, like on the railway side of Hawthorne's Glenferry Oval. Well, I better stop this now, or you're sure to switch off, dear listener. But my point is, I see ghosts everywhere, and it's simultaneously sad and fun. The passing of life. You don't appreciate it till it's gone. By the way, you know that lyric, you don't miss your water till your well runs dry? Well, it's wrong. Of course you don't miss your water. You can't miss something if it's there. You don't appreciate your water till your well runs dry. I know that doesn't scan as well, but get fucked and stop ruining the language. Where was I? Oh yes, gone. I even feel melancholy about the ghosts at my former places of work. I know that I complained about my fraught lifetime relationship with work in an earlier episode of this podcast, but... My problem with being told what to do aside, my working life is still full of rich memories of great times and lovely people, all of which and whom I miss. So, I still see the ghosts when I go past. Croydon High School, which, as far as I can tell, has recently been demolished, will make me very sad if I drive past it again. Life goes on, progress happens... But in pulling down those buildings, they've trashed some of the greatest memories of my life. The experiences I had as a fresh young schoolteacher were simultaneously terrifying and wonderful. Hindsight's rose-coloured glasses have subsequently dimmed the bad memories, of course, but to see certain kids go from Year 7 all the way to Year 12 and out into the world, to have the slightest sense that you helped them along the way, well, there's no feeling quite like it. 
And my teaching buddies, who I felt were sort of in the trenches with me, sorry about the lazy and inappropriate use of war imagery there, they'll always have a spot in my heart. All of those people, all the hundreds of students, they're all ghosts flitting through my consciousness. Later workplaces don't have quite the same emotional pull, but they're still full of lifelike ghosts all the same. At the corner of Queen Street and Little Burke Street, Melbourne, is an old, not particularly pretty building. But as I say this, it's still there, outwardly appearing the same as it was in 1979 when I went to my first full-time job as a Clark Class 1, bottom shelf, in the Commonwealth Public Service Department of Transport Recruitment Division. I walk past this building now and see a ghost of my former self, but it's certainly not a ghost surrounded by loving reminiscence. The public service of 1979 was a very different place, a world pre-computer where everything was written, an impenetrable, exhausting mass of paper, triplicate communication, Bakelite telephones, messages conveyed between floors by hand where even a photocopier machine was some kind of space-age concept. This was when organisations employed huge numbers of people to do the work of one person today. Building after building of people sat at their desks in rows and rows, like the opening scene of my favourite movie, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine in The Apartment. And this was the public service in stereotypical extremists. Everything you heard about working in the public service most surely displayed. Passive-aggressive office politics, bitter cul-de-sac-occupying professional malingerers who once embarked on a working life full of hopes and dreams, now beaten down into shells of secret regret. And above all else, a whole lot of people with fuck-all work to do. Now that might seem, in this ridiculous age of overworking as expected behaviour, to be some kind of Shangri-La. I can most assuredly tell you it was not. Well, it was like that for about one day, and then the alarm went and you had to do it again, and again, and again, until it became very much, in my case, a living hell. Ah yes, repetition. Let's talk about repetition for a moment. Repetition does fascinating things to the psyche. Incongruously, like those faintly implausible testimonies of long-distance runners talking about the strange out-of-body transcendence beyond the lactic acid phase of a marathon, repetition can lead to pleasure. The word mantra springs to mind. The trance-like effect of repetition is the foundation of much electronic music, and I became one of its unlikely disciples. But although I didn't know it, I was enjoying it in tiny instalments at a very young age, in the unlikely context of one of the least electronic bands in the history of rock. Only the bits I love. One of the earliest albums that entered my household when I was still at primary school, roughly 11 years old, was Cosmo's Factory by Credence Clearwater Revival. They were a huge band at the time, known for massive hit singles like Proud Mary and Down on the Corner, rootsy, down-home, rockabilly-tinged rock and roll with twangy guitars and John Fogarty's wonderful far-removed evocation of life on the bayou. But there was a lot more going on in their music. 
dark undercurrents and unusual flavours that made them soar way above the rest of the whole amorphous genre labelled Americana. On Cosmo's Factory, they had two really long songs. Well, this is pre-prog, and to me, as a ten-year-old, they were mind-blowingly long songs. An 11-minute cover of Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine, and the seven-minute Ramble Tamble, which is my favourite Credence song. Both songs relied on trance-like repetition. Ramble Tamble, with a lyric full of apocalyptic foreboding, starts like a truck motoring down the highway, then settles into this fabulous atmospheric slow groove which repeats over and over, building in intensity. And the lead guitar starts hammering out one chord like a machine gun spitting fire out of a US chopper into the fields of Cambodia circa 1970. Well, that's where my mind goes. It's trance music 20 years before trance music. That's the wonders of repetition for you. But strangely, it was no comfort to me as the alarm went and I crawled out of bed to take the red rattler to Flinders Street and begin yet another day as a Clark Class 1 in the Commonwealth Public Service Department of Transport Recruitment Division. I need to point out that my starting position was already dubious. I left school thinking that the only thing I was interested in, apart from supermarionation and old football grounds, was music. I wasn't a famous musician, though. I was barely even an unknown musician. So, of course, with my parents and my deep-seated psyche forcing me towards regular employment, I figured I had this great plan. Get a job, but don't do anything too difficult. A job that would save my brain for the higher calling of music. And that was the public service, because the public service had a reputation for being a job where you had to do fuck all. And that fuck all was easy work. Stereotypes are terrible things, but this stereotype was 100% true. A Clark Class 1 basically did a bit of filing. Know your alphabet? That's your skill set. And I reckon I had about enough filing for two days' work. Stretch that out over a week and see how you go. Of course, 
I'm sure the idea was actually for the Clark Class 1 to show a bit of initiative and learn about the greater work of the place and gradually work their way towards promotion to a Class 2, whatever the fuck that was. But if you're starting with the premise that you want to do the least amount of least taxing work possible, well, it's a recipe for a pretty flavourless existence. So, to pass the day, which seemed to go for eight Venus hours, not Earth ones, I would space it out with highlights. I used to smoke, and of course you could smoke in offices. Can you imagine it? Clouds of cigarette smoke surrounding people like festering rain clouds. Imagine what the sensitive noses of the 21st century would make of that. Anyway, I'd probably smoke four cigarettes a day and space them out every two hours. Then in between that, I'd have a packet of Alan's fruit tingles and shout myself one fruit tingle every other hour. Sound like a wasted existence to you? Sure was. And I find that the less you do in a job, the more each task required of you becomes momentously difficult, a mountain to climb. You want me to file an extra piece of paper? What a fucking imposition! So it went. As being a Clark Class 1 bottom shelf in the Commonwealth Public Service Department of Transport Recruitment Division began to slowly drain the life force out of me, I began to cut corners. You see, to add to the trap of having no work to do, life in the public service also afforded you the luxury of not having to work eight hours a day. This was called flexi-time. You had to sign on and off, and as long as you worked the stipulated number of hours over the month, you could do it in your own way. Work a few longer days, build up credits and take time off. That was how it was meant to work. Or in my case... Chip off hours here and there until you had to put in a fucking marathon just to catch up. Hating my job, hating my life, hating myself, I would start sleeping in later and later. Then, as days would never draw to their agonising conclusion, pulling my own head off in boredom, I would abandon ship earlier and earlier. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and the desperate leads to the criminal – Facing the prospect of working till 8pm just to catch up, I would wait till the last person left the office and get the fuck out of there, having fraudulently signed off for two hours later. If that wasn't bad enough, I started to take longer and longer lunch breaks. As I'd mentioned in a previous podcast, I was walking distance from my Bermuda Triangle of Escape, four fabulous record stores within a stone's throw of each other. Having no friends at my work, I would spend my lunchtimes, my longer and longer lunchtimes, in those record stores, staring at covers, dreaming of a world that seemed so far from me. By the way, if anyone knows the exact location of Missing Link Records in 1979, I'd love to know. It wasn't yet in Flinders Lane. My recollection has it somewhere around Manchester Lane down a set of stairs on a basement floor. But exactly where? There's no evidence of it today. And believe you me, I have spent many lunchtimes wandering around that area like some weird, besuited archaeologist looking for the buried treasure of the Incas, unable to find the exact spot where I could stand there and summon the ghost of myself buying all mod cons by the jam and entering a new world. 
If you know of anyone who could set me straight on that one, I'd be most grateful. Back in 1979, I was there, but as a living ghost, drained of purpose, meaning, point. I'm glad I did it. It helped me become the person I am today. But shit, it was hard at the time. And as the world of record stores and all they contained lured me away, I was now burning my flexi-time candle at both ends and in the middle. Something had to give. Uh, Damien, can you pop into my office? Said Gary, my boss. Damien, I've noticed that you've been taking two-hour lunch breaks but only signing on for 30 minutes. Also, you've been starting work later and later and leaving office earlier and earlier. This kind of coming straight to the point and not skirting around the issue seemed very non-public service, or so I thought, until the next thing he said. However, as I'm leaving for Canberra soon, I'm not going to take action this time, but I want you to promise me that when Joan takes over in my role, you won't do this again. I left his office, suitably contrite, yet somehow reinforced. In the public service, crime pays. And then, the next morning, the alarm went again. I was Bill Murray, off to see the groundhog. And I'll see you next time. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time.